let's pray, um, and we will get started back into First Peter. Father, once again, we come to you with thankfulness that you have allowed us to gather again to worship you um, as our holy, holy, holy God who is set apart and has called us to be set apart to live uh, in light of the truth of the gospel of what you have done in Christ. Uh, I pray that tonight as we look here at this passage in First Peter, um, that even as this as the song said, that you would speak um, and that we would re- receive the food of your holy word um, and that that truth would be planted deep within us and shape and fashion us in your likeness. Um, We pray that you would uh, put Christ's uh, glory on display this evening as we study here in 1 Peter. And we thank you for the truth that you have given us in your word. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, our passage this evening is from 1 Peter chapter 1 and going into chapter 2. So it's going to start in verse 13 and go through chapter 2, verse number 3. So I'll read that here for us as we get rolling. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seeds, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, we have most likely all seen some kind of cartoons or movies or even read books um, where we get a picture of a large old ship sailing at sea, and there's no land all around them. You can't see land anywhere, as far as the eye can see. Their course has been charted, and they're moving now from point A to point B on their voyage. 
And at this point, the entire crew may not actively be working uh, all the time uh, as they allow the wind to kind of push them along in their sails to their tor- towards their destination. And we can probably also picture part of this ship, which is called the Crow's Nest. Not named after David Maggie, but <laughs> the Crow's Nest. Uh, at the top of the main mast, which was the highest point of the ship, and therefore they had the best view if you were up in that point. What that crow's nest was there for was for someone to climb up and to be the lookout for other ships, for other obstacles, or for land, hopefully, where they were sailing to. The crew member that had that job to be up there was extremely important to the ship uh, before all of the devices that we now have in, with modern technology. They used their eyes. <laughs> and they were on the lookout at all times for what was in front of them. I view Peter a little bit in this letter somewhat as the guy in the crow's nest and Christians that he was writing to, along with us as readers, are the rest of that crew. And Peter is writing this letter as the one who has the best view of what is to come on the horizon. It's almost as if he spots and sees land in front of them off in the distance and he yells, land ho, land ho. If we or those who he was writing to were part of the crew at that point, there's a good chance that we, from that vantage point on the deck, would not be able to see the land that he's probably talking about at that moment. But when that call is made, that land is coming on the horizon. The rest of the crew would spring into action. They'd have to get ready to make landing, even though they might not be able to see land at that point. They put away the things that they were doing to pass the time. They wake up from their naps and they take their spot on the sail or on the oar with the hope that making landfall soon was a reality. They would have signed up for some kind of role in this ship and it was crucial that at that time they would get ready to fulfill that role. This is kind of a short picture of what this section of 1 Peter, but really the entire book of 1 Peter kind of looks like. maybe in a general analogy. And here, Christians are called to live obediently in hope of what is to come. Peter spent the first part of this letter laying out the beauty of the gospel and encouraging believers in that truth. The foundation of the faith was laid for them, and now he's adding bricks to that foundation. Christian ethics, which shows us how believers should now live in an unbelieving world. A world in which they are pilgrims, just passing through on their way to eternal glory. In this section, he changes to the heart of the letter, the so now what, if you will. Because God has done what he has in Christ, we have an eternal hope, which now we can hold to, and that drives us to live differently. We're called to live holy lives focused on the goodness and the hope of God. We'll look at five practical exhortations or calls to action, so to speak, that Peter gives and what it should look like for Christians to now live in this phase of history that we often refer to as the already but not yet. Something that I want to highlight is that each one of these exhortations in this section is also given along with a statement that ties back to the section before, back to the truth of the gospel, back to what is true of God. One pastor said, 
the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. What does he mean by that? Well, if I can simplify that, I would say something like, when God tells us how to live, it's always based on what he has already done. God does not just throw out arbitrary commandments that he calls his people to follow, but rather they're based on something. They're based on his character and his goodness. The truth of what God has done for us is always the foundation of what we are then called to do for him. With this idea in mind that God first lays the foundation uh, of what he, what he has done and then calls his people to act, let's look at these five exhortations presented here in 1 Peter 1 and then into 2. Uh, the five exhortations in this section are live hopefully, pursue holiness, fear God, love one another, and crave the word. Live hopefully, pursue holiness, fear God, love one another, and crave the word. So first, there's a call in verse 13, right off the bat, to live hopefully. Remember the first part of this letter that Colin covered the first two sermons, where Peter encouraged listeners in the gospel. He built the foundation. Now, we shift to the second part of the letter, where Peter lays out what life built on that foundation looks like. He sets up the rest of the coming exhortations by laying them one by one on the foundation that is fixed on the work that God has done. Now here, in this first call to live hopefully, it's set up by two actions of preparation. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The call to prepare our minds for action would translate to us saying something like, roll up your sleeves, get ready. Using this language, what, what he, uh, actually in using this language, what he's doing is pulling from the idea of girding up your loins. That was used elsewhere in the Bible. I mean, probably heard that before. At that time, men wore tunics, which were loose-fitting clothing, almost like a dress, that would go down to their knees or lower. And they would use a band of some sort to tie up that tunic when they were getting ready to take part in an activity. The picture here is to ready yourself as if readying yourself for work or for battle or something physically demanding where that tunic can't get in the way to trip you up and slow you down. He also says to be sober-minded, be self-controlled by fixing your gaze forward. This is a big call for someone living in a culture that at times prided itself on no self-control. What do we think of when we think of Roman culture at this time when this letter was written? Considering that this letter was most likely written during the reign of the emperor Nero, who was famous, or should we say infamous, for his lack of self-control, this is a call to be different to your core. We get a picture of culture at that time from letters, from other letters written in the early church. And the youth were wrapping up a study right now in Galatians. In Galatians 5.19, Paul writes a list which he calls the works of the flesh, meaning works that would be common to the human experience, but for those who profess Christ. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. And this list goes on and on. These are actions that show a lack of self-control and a lack of reverence for God. 
But the call through this section is to get ready and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ, who's the author and the finisher of your faith. Look ahead. Don't be distracted by what's happening beside you, but look in front. This is where our hope lies. Because of what Christ has done, because of God's grace, that is yours and you are united with Christ. Roll up your sleeves and get ready to work for the glory of God as His beloved child. Then the second exhortation that Peter gives is to pursue holiness, and that would be in verses 14 to 16. Once again, these verses we see here anchor, we see Peter anchor the exhortation in God's goodness. In verse 15, he says, As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. Who has called called you holy, Christian? Who has redeemed you? Who has given you a new heart and put a new spirit within you? Who has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of marvelous light? It was God. The same God who took Israel when they were still a people group and made them a nation after he had led them out of captivity. In verse 16, we see Peter directly reference what God said multiple times in the book of Leviticus. Be holy, for I am holy. This instance is taken from Leviticus 11, um, verses 44 to 45, where God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming things that crawl, thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Did you catch that there? Did you catch the action of what God had done for His people being the foundation of, for what He calls them to do, even there in the book of Leviticus? I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, go and be holy as I am holy. We must not forget that God's holiness is different than ours. He is altogether holy and perfect, whereas we can only be called holy based on what He has done for us. He's completely other than anything or anyone else because He reigns as Creator of all things, and all of His ways are perfect and righteous and just. But, because He has drawn us to Him, now He calls us to reflect Him in the way that we live. He calls us to reflect Him in how we can conduct ourselves and carry ourselves as His representatives on earth. If you're familiar with the book of Leviticus, then think through it with me if you can. If you Do you recall the setting and the purpose of the commands that God gave to Israel. It was right after Israel left Egyptian captivity. God was taking a group of people who He had made promises to. He was making them into a nation who needed direction. God brought them up out of captivity in Egypt, but they had lived so long as slaves there that they struggled to remember who God was. He was setting them apart for Himself to be used by Him to be a blessing to the world. Because of what God had done for them, they were different than every other nation surrounding them. Every other nation in the world. They were set apart 
called to be holy. And this is true with the believers who were also reading this letter from Peter in the first century, and it continues to be true of Christians now. We're called to live differently than the world around us because we have already been set apart for a higher calling, one that is eternally hopeful at its core. We're called to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. Think of it this way. We've probably all heard the statement, like father, like son. I can't tell you how many people, usually the ones that worked with my dad when I was growing up, would tell me that I looked like my dad, I talked like my dad, I acted like my dad. In all honesty, when I was 15, and someone would say that, I'd probably, I'd roll my eyes, because one, I had heard it a thousand times before, but two, I didn't really think my dad was that cool, so I didn't want to be like him <laughs> at that point. But, as I got older, and I matured, and I spent more time interacting with both my dad and the other people who knew them that would say this, I started to realize that was what they were saying was a compliment. They deeply appreciated and respected my dad. For, so for them to, to say that I was like him, that was a good thing. Now, when somebody, someone tells me I'm like my dad, I take that as one of the biggest compliments I can get. Peter is telling these Christians, be like your heavenly father. You once conformed to the passions of your ignorance, but now you're obedient children. We want the world to see how we live as people who are different, set apart, and we want them to say of us, like father, like son, as we reflect his character. Then the third call that Peter gives here is in verses 17 to 21. It's an exhortation to fear God. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, now fear God is the call that we hear at this point. Quick pop quiz, and you can answer. What is the beginning of knowledge according to Proverbs 1? Yes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs begins with this message because a proper understanding of who God is is foundational for everything else. If one looks outside of what God has given us to understand Himself and all that He has created, it's an exercise in futility. If an inventor created something brand new that no one else had ever seen anything like it, who would we look to in order to receive instructions on how this new invention worked? Would we look to ourselves? Would we look to others who, like us, have no idea how to operate this new contraption? No. We would go to the source. We would go to the one who developed the plan, put the pieces together, and understands how all things work together. God precedes everything. He is the creator of all things and therefore the one who understands how everything that he created operates. To look outside of him for answers is an act of absolute pointlessness, which is why Proverbs calls the person doing so the fool. Peter says, if you call on him as father, if you would claim to be a Christian, then fear God. There's an intimacy also involved here, which is reflected by Christians being able to call God Father. Remember that Jesus taught his disciples, and by virtue all believers, to address God as our Father. Because of Jesus, 
we have been adopted into the family of God. And we now have a level of closeness with God that was not true of us before He redeemed us. But there is also a reverence indicated here and in the rest of Scripture, even as we approach God as Father. Even as His child, we don't approach Him flippantly with no regard for His holiness. We approach Him knowing that He is both loving Father and righteous Judge. It's like how a child might approach their earthly father. The child loves and respects their father and wants to do what pleases him, so they willingly look to him for instruction. This is the picture that we get from Peter here as he shows these Christians how to live as exiles, waiting for the future promised hope of being fully saved from their present trials in this world. The same word for fear here is used also in Philippians 2. It's also used many other times elsewhere. But Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 to 13, I thought of where Paul calls Christians to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. And I want to take a second to look at that because I think these two passages are often misinterpreted because they may have been they may be taken out of context. Um, many hear the statement work out your salvation from Philippians, or they see here the statement that God judges impartially according to one's deeds, and they assume that these statements mean that our works, so what we do, have something to do with our salvation. But that's not what's being said in these instances. In Ephesians 2, we have a a short and clear picture of God's grace and mercy in the act of granting someone salvation. We're told We were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we were raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's that hope again. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Being saved from our sins, being set apart for God's purposes, cleansed, washed, renewed, and counted righteous in His sight is not because of anything that we can do. Do we go to the gym or work out in our basement on the elliptical to create muscle? Or do we go to the gym and work out in our basement to build and tone and strengthen the muscles that, we have, that are already ours because they were given to us by our Heavenly Father. We don't create muscle when we work out, just like we don't add anything to our salvation when we obey the commandments that God has given us. To believe these statements say that we add anything by our works or to our salvation would be a confusion of how one is justified So Peter, in a similar way to Paul, isn't writing to pagans. He's calling Christians to look to the beauty of already being counted among God's people. And also to look forward to the day when we fully see the immeasurable riches of His grace and we meet Christ face to face. We look forward in hope, being both thankful for the love that God expressed in sending Christ and also thankful for the love that Christ expressed in going to the cross for us. His blood, His death, 
was the cost of our redemption. And there's no greater cost, which shows us there's no greater love ever expressed. This is the foundation that the exhortation to fear the Lord is built upon. Fourthly, in verses 22 to 25, we're exhorted to love one another. Because you were purified, love one another. Because you were born again through the living and abiding Word of God. God's Word here is presented as that which God uses to save His people. It's also presented as everlasting, unlike elements in creation that fade and die. It's imperishable, and through the Holy Spirit, it purifies us to live obediently in love. Now, if you were with us two summers ago, we went through a Sunday school series called Loving the Way Jesus Loves, where we studied the, the passage uh, in First Corinthians 13, where Paul lays out the perfect picture of what love is. It's patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And also, it never ends. It never ends. Does that sound familiar? Just like the word of the Lord, which calls us to love one another, love will never pass away. Ultimately, in 1 John 4.19, we're told that we love because He first loved us. This seems to imply that outside of those who have been purified and given Christ's Spirit to dwell within them, they can't love like this. The love that Peter is talking about here is a love that is greater than, than is what is found in the world. And it comes directly from the source of that love, who is called love himself, our Heavenly Father. Peter wants these Christians to bear with one another through struggles, to actively work on their love for one another as they try to understand each other better. This takes work. Remember in the beginning of the passage when Peter essentially said, roll up your sleeves, it's time to get ready to work? We're great at loving ourselves. But the high calling of one redeemed by Christ is to love others as well, and that takes work. And God doesn't expect us to do this on our own. Once again, He doesn't just say, go do this. No, He's given us a perfect example of love in action. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Not just did God give us written words to show us truth and explain love to us. He gave us a person. The eternal Word Himself put on flesh and dwelt among His people who He created. These were people who did not love Him first. You did not love Him first. I did not love Him first. But He first loved us while we were still sinners. He loved us enough and so actively that He was willing to die for us. And even in His example, He was focused on the future. He was focused on that which is to come. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Jesus is love, and He showed us perfect love in His life, death, and resurrection, which was to make atonements for our sins, not for His. The never guilty went to the cross for the guilty. The King died for His sinful subjects. This is the truth of which Peter has anchored all these exhortations. That not only has this already happened, but he has promised us to return and make all things new. That the hope, and this is the hope that he calls us to act on. And if 
that isn't good enough. He also gives us His Spirit to impress upon us these truths. To give us assurance of what He has done and will do. Finally, then heading into chapter 2 of 1 Peter 1, we see the final exhortation from this section this evening in verses 1 to 3. Crave the Word. Now if you take out chapter divisions, this could read something like this. And the Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Instead, long for spiritual milk, that being nourished in it, you may grow in Christ-likeness. What are all these things listed in verse 1? They're characteristics of very poor and unhealthy relationships. A relationship or a brotherhood that is opposite of what Peter just spoke of in the previous verses what he outlined. How could individuals love one another if their relationship were filled with these things? Maybe an even better question is, how could one who is redeemed partake in, the, in these at the expense of another who has also been redeemed by the same blood of Christ? It's unacceptable behavior for the Christian who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. For the Christian who is called to be different, to be holy, to be set apart. Peter is more encouraging these believers to crave pure spiritual milk as a young baby craves their mother. He's speaking of a good milk that helps them grow and nourishes them in their maturation and development. Also, if we remember the context of which this letter was written, these Christians did not have the Bible bound together and printed the way that we do now. They would have had to had the full Old Testament and parts of the New, but there were still some letters, New Testament epistles, that hadn't been written at this point when, the, when Peter wrote this letter. They would not have been able to hop on Amazon and buy a beautifully bound Bible and have it at their house within two days, sipping coffee with, coffee with their feet propped up like we can now. So what Peter is most likely referring to here in the phrase longing for the pure spiritual milk would be more of a broad picture of the work that the church is called to do. If we look at a picture of the very early church at the end of Acts 2, we see a few things that churchgoers devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, or the Lord's Supper, and prayer. This is most likely what Peter is referring to here as he's about to expand on that and the the life of the church in the next few verses. He's calling them to do what they can do now to nourish themselves spiritually. And at that time, before the Bible was completed in, in their hands, they wouldn't have separated the Word of God from His church. That was where they went to hear the apostles' teaching and to continue to be equipped to live lives differently. That was where they went to be fed as young children longing for nourishment. And this is no different for us even now. As the pure spiritual milk, the word through which they received new birth was brought into their minds and their hearts. And the desires for these nasty things in verses 1 were pushed out and put to death, replaced with the things of God. To, To Peter, this is the positive direction towards salvation that he wants them to move. Peter's words push believers to remember that we're driven by the hope that is focused on the grace that will be brought 
to us by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The future hope, the fullness and fullness of salvation where God's people are truly saved from a world of pain, suffering, and sin and glorified to be forever with our Savior. Until that day, we're called to be to live as obedient children, considering both what Christ has done and the hope of grace that will be fully revealed at His second coming. To that, we can say, Amen, and come Lord Jesus quickly. Let's pray.